Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. As the only woman covering baseball full time at that point, whenever I would appear in a, in a new press box, um, you know, they didn't quite know what to make of this. Um, there was a time before this that women weren't even allowed in the press box. So the fact that I was there um, always was a matter of, of at least interest in conversation. Welcome to Bearcat. I'm Amy Westervelt. I'm Brittany Shute, and this is Bearcat, a podcast for serious women. And... It's about serious women, like the woman we're featuring this week, someone Amy met at a very cool conference recently. That was Melissa Ludke you heard from in the intro. Melissa broke down barriers for women's sports writers in baseball. Her lawsuit in 1977 opened up clubhouses and managers' offices to women sports writers for the first time ever. She told her whole story recently at the Journalism and Women's Symposium annual conference. It was super interesting to listen to. I think I would have been a tomboy if I'd grown up somewhere other than I did and in a different family than I did. Um, and let me explain that a little. I grew up in the town of Amherst, Massachusetts, which is a probably, it has always been a somewhat progressive uh, community because of its having so many universities. It's known as the five college area. And my father was a professor when we moved there. And I was the first of five children in our family at the time, born in the early 50s. And our community, probably because of being Amherst, Massachusetts, had um, had girls' sports. Now that, as I've come to understand through reading history, you know, you only live the life you live and you think everyone else lives the same life when you're a child. But I've come later to understand that that was really a luxury for us, to have had um, community sports that invited girls to participate, to have girls' teams in sports. So I grew up in an environment in which that was accepted. So I didn't have to choose to be a tomboy. I didn't have to fight, for example, like a woman named Maria Pepe did uh, in New Jersey around my same time to, to join the, the, the Boys Little League. I mean, we had sports and events that invited both boys and girls to be part of it. So I would say that I was inclined to play sports. I was encouraged to play sports by my family and we can get into this a little. I was also taken along at a very early age by my father, who was a particular fan of the UMass teams, and he would just load us. It didn't matter that the first two of the five kids were girls. He just loaded us into the station wagon, and we'd follow the teams wherever they went. And so I learned you know, football. I learned basketball. I learned all of those sports. I learned how to talk them as well as how to play them at a very early age and without having to choose if I was going to be a tomboy or be the girl I was. I love sports from a very early age and I did play sports. Um, you know, you organize sports probably begins when you're moving into sort of middle school. And I have to confess that in seventh grade, I looked around and 
you know, I, I realized that the most popular girls, of which I wanted to be one, were going out for the cheerleading squad. They were the cheerleaders. So I tried out to be a cheerleader, and I got on the cheerleading squad. And that, like, was the pinnacle. I mean, that was almost <laughs> like being queen of homecoming. Except that, you know, you were, you, you know, so you showed up and you cheered for the boys. Well, that lasted exactly one season. And I really realized after that that it really didn't matter if I was doing the popular thing. I didn't like doing it. I'd rather be out playing the sports. Part of why we wanted to produce Bearcat is because serious women's lives can be so different, especially depending on where they grew up and when. I feel like Melissa's story was interesting to you, Amy, because where she grew up really impacted not only the way that she was growing up, but then it seems like sometimes more than she may have realized. I think this happens to all of us. It ended up really affecting who she became, you know, like how she grew up really, really formed, you know, what, how her life ended up going and what she ended up doing. Yeah, that's totally it. So when she switched from cheerleading to playing sports herself, she started playing basketball and she told this hilarious story about how apparently they had different rules for girls playing basketball um, which were all geared towards, you know, sort of being ladylike. And one of those rules, at least the one that like stood out the most to me, was that you couldn't dribble more than three times before you had to stop and pass it. So, but like, as she points out, everyone else knew that rule too. So like, whenever you had the ball, there was always like a whole group of people waiting for you three steps away. <laughs> And she talks about how those rules were sort of a metaphor for the, the guidelines for women in general at the time. If you were a girl and you played basketball in my time, you did not often get to move the whole court because you, you played that, see? I mean, you know, I go to my daughter's classes and I tell this story and they are like, this is the part of my story they just can't believe. So the rules were this, you could only dribble the ball three times and then you had to pass it. Now, okay, so just imagine what that means. If you're dribbling it three times, everyone knows that you can only dribble three times. So what's waiting for you at the end of that dribble is an enormous, like, scrum of people, you know, like with windmill arms up, and then you're trying to pass the ball off to someone else who can only dribble it three times. And then besides that, you have the center court line, and if you are, listen to these terms, if you are a stationary forward or a stationary guard, you cannot go across that line. So you have to wait on the other side of the line for the ball to come to you if you're a forward, and if you're a guard, you can't cross that line. You have to stop. Now, then there are two rovers. <laughs> rovers, they are allowed to go the full length of the court. So I always dreamed, I always wanted to be the rover, of course. But anyway, that's the kind of game that we played. And you know, it was really, as I'm writing my, my, my book now about my life in sports, that really became, as I look back on it, a metaphor for what our life was like off the court as well. I also did not realize there was a form of women's basketball that included not moving on the floor. <laughs> I, I, Amy, I don't know if you did this. I tried to look up stationary guard and stationary forward positions. 
I had a hard time finding much information on those, and I think that really shows how much that history is hidden and unknown, unless you happen to know someone who lived it. And even then, you would have to know to ask about it, or they would have to voluntarily share that story. <laughs> it's really wild. <laughs> it's just totally ridiculous. This episode of Bearcat is brought to you in part by Lola, which is a monthly subscription service of organic feminine care products. They're organic and non-toxic. They offer a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, liners, and all natural cleansing wipes. This happens to be a subject that I've spent quite a bit of time researching. Uh, the FDA, as you probably know, does not vet any kind of personal care or beauty products that are on the market. They only really look into something if a complaint is lodged about it. And then for some reason, tampons, because they are considered medical devices, the ingredients do not need to be listed on the box, even though they're like over-the-counter consumer products. So there's really a lack of transparency in what goes into to any kind of feminine care products and they often include dyes and fragrances and various other types of chemicals that are just not great for anywhere in your body but especially not a mucous membrane okay so <laughs> the other thing about lola is that because it's a monthly subscription you can kind of like sign up and forget it which for me is kind of a godsend if you would like to try lola for 40 percent off all subscriptions visit mylola.com and enter Bearcat when you subscribe. That's 40% off all subscriptions. Visit mylola.com and enter Bearcat when you subscribe. Okay, back to the show. She ended up going to Wellesley, which is where she graduated. And for a while there, she was an art history major and kind of thought she would go to work in galleries. And then her senior year, she did an internship in a gallery and she hated it. And so she was feeling sort of like not sure what she was going to do with herself. And then Shirley Chisholm comes and speaks at their graduation ceremony and, and kind of challenged the girls to, to do something about the two biggest movements happening at the time, which were the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. Our um, graduation speaker, our commencement speaker, who I remember so well to this day was Shirley Chisholm. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. and Shirley Chisholm uh, came and gave us what I thought was an astonishing talk. And essentially there's a paragraph from it that I still keep near me and, and uh, use, use again in, in the book I'm writing in which she really spoke mainly and mostly to the um, white women in our class when she admonished us to get engaged in these. She said, if I can do it as a black woman, you with the education and the privileges that you have had, you can become engaged in the two major struggles of your time, the civil rights movement and the women's movement. Mm -hmm. And that really hit me but it almost paralyzed me, I have to say. I didn't know what to do. I had majored in art history. That was really a byproduct of having gone to high school in Rome, Italy, and been taught by an amazing woman named Franca Camise in two courses, History of Art and History of the Renaissance, traveling all through Italy, seeing this art, and falling in love with it. She had, of course, gone to Wellesley College, gone on to Harvard, and I thought, I need to be Franca. I mean, this is the woman I need to be. I'd found my role model. And so I went and studied that, and I love studying it, 
But during my senior year, I'd worked in an art gallery, and I realized I had no interest working in this field. So I was kind of adrift. I, I really didn't quite know what to do. I had to think of a plan B. Um, Shirley, Shirley Chisholm. There she is again. It, it makes sense that so many stories about Bearcats come back to Shirley Chisholm. I was really glad that we could mention her in our episode about Flo Kennedy for the same reason. I know, right? Shirley Chisholm, patron saint of Bearcats. So she goes home after graduation. She goes to her family's summer home on the Cape, as you do. And she's kind of, you know, trying to figure out what she's going to do. And she goes for like a walk on the beach one afternoon. And there's a woman who's sort of struggling with a sailboat in the wind. And Melissa helps her and... As she's like sailing away, she sort of says, oh, come over for dinner tonight. And so uh, she does. And that kind of leads into this this next phase of her career. Here's that story. So I, one afternoon in August, I, for whatever reason, I was very windy out. And I thought, I'll go down and take a walk down to the, uh, to the pier um, and just kind of see what's going on and just get out of the house. And I did, and what happened is that a um, good friend of mine, who I'd grown up, I should begin the story by saying that our summer home was in Hyannisport, and so I'd grown up there during the time that President Kennedy had been president, et cetera, et cetera. I'd grown up, and it's a very small town, and we all knew each other pretty well. So I went down and discovered that um, the wind was really howling, and um, Ethel Kennedy at that point was out in her boat, as she would want to be in Howling Winds, and um, having a little trouble um, not getting too close to shore. So I sort of went into the water and sort of helped her to kind of get the boat and push it out and get it back out. And um, while I was doing that, um, she kind of turned, she said, why don't you come over for dinner tonight? And off she sailed. And I said, okay. So um, I went over to dinner that night, and um, across from me at dinner that night was Frank Gifford, who was a very, very good friend of hers. And Frank Gifford and I were seated across from each other, and for two hours... I'm interrupting you. There are a lot of people here who don't know who Frank Gifford is. Frank Gifford was the matinee idol NFL football player of New York. He uh, eventually married Kathy Lee Gifford, which probably gives you a clearer sense for you younger ones, but at the time, he had tra- he'd been one of the first football players to successfully move into the broadcasting field, and he was with ABC Sports, which was the king of sports at that point, Sports Network, Sports TV, Rune Arledge, and the gang, and he had done the Munich Olympics in 1972, and here we were, you know, that summer, and I was, you know, I had been glued to that Olympics for many reasons. I mean, that was when the terrorist attack happened and the athletes died, and so, but there were also medals won and um, athletic teams participated, obviously. So, Frank and I talked sports almost the entire dinner, with others obviously chiming in. But at the end of the dinner, he gave me a compliment, at least at that time when I was 21 years old, 22, I thought it was a great compliment. He said, you know, for a girl, you know a lot about sports. <laughs> but what was great about the compliment was that he then said, so if you come to New York, I'd be delighted, I'd be happy to introduce you to all the people at ABC Sports. 
Well, I had no intention of going to New York before dinner. But after dinner, I decided I'd make my first trip ever to New York City. And about, um, about a month or so, three weeks later or so, I did just that. And it had turned out that in that time, of course, Billie Jean King had beaten Bobby Riggs in the um, Battle of the Sexes. And that was, of course, an exciting turning point for all of us at that point. It stood for so much more than just that victory. And so I drove to New York, and Frank, the man of his word, met me right at the elevators at ABC Sports, introduced me around to all of the producers, and the one I glommed onto, and I mean glommed onto, was the only woman producer at that time, a woman named Ellie Rieger. And she was working with a staff of all women on a special they were doing on women in sports. Why were they doing it? Because of Billie Jean King's victory and also the passage of Title IX. Those two pivotal events had happened in that time. So this was uh, now 73, uh, fall of 73. So Ellie immediately said, why don't you come over and just hang out with us for a couple days, see what we're doing. And I thought, oh my God, this is incredible. So I did. And um, I not only met my future roommate, who was a production assistant, and that was very helpful later on, but Donna DeVarona, who had won gold medals swimming in 1960, was breaking into broadcasting. She was there working on it. And then Billie Jean King walks in. Oh, my God. I'm like, this is it. This is it. This is what I'm doing with my life. This is it. We don't really mention men in our podcast. And... I gotta say, <laughs> Frank Gifford was not really on my list of men that I thought might we might end up mentioning or having to discuss. <laughs> yeah, I had the same reaction. <laughs> Billie Jean King, on the other hand, a total bearcat. Yeah, totally. This makes sense. I'm actually really glad this that we get to talk even briefly about her and her legacy. Yeah, exactly. So she takes him up on his offer and, you know, goes to New York, meets all these people, is like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I have to find a way to work in sports reporting. And what does she think? But, you know, I know I'll get a job as a secretary and then I'll work my way up. And, and that's basically what she tries to do. Here she is talking about that. I go and buy a book on stenography <laughs> and I practice my typing because I'd studied art history. I didn't go to Syracuse and study media broadcasting. So I thought tried and true, the secretary with a foot in the door. What else? How else am I gonna get into this world that I wanna be in? So I go down, I go back down about a month later. I think my steno's pretty good. My typing is all is very good. And so I go to the seventh floor, whatever, take the typing test, the steno test, and uh, the results come out very quickly. And I walk, I'm told to walk upstairs and meet with one of the vice presidents of ABC Sports. I sit down, he's got one piece of paper in this hand and my resume in the other. And he looks at the score, he said, you know, not bad, not bad. And he said, but you know, I'm looking here. He said, you graduated from Wellesley College. I, I don't think you really want to be a secretary. He said, so we're not hiring you. Now, what I later learned, I didn't know any of this history at this point, but, you know, Lynn Povich had done her suit at Newsweek, you know, the girls' revolt, and the gender discrimination suits were out there. And what happened is that these media companies knew 
that they could not any longer hire women at positions that were below what their educational level and their preparation, et cetera. So me going to Wellesley College put me out of the running for going into the secretarial pool because if they ever got sued, that would be one of the points of evidence. So apparently Harper's Bazaar had no compunction about hiring her as a secretary. She gets that. She gets a secretary job and she ends up finding a roommate who's a producer or an assistant producer at ABC Sports. So through that, she gets to know what's happening and when. And she said that was like a hugely valuable part of building her career. Here's that. So having a roommate who was a production assistant at ABC Sports gave me access to the entire schedule for every month in advance of what every producer was doing and who was on what show and where they were going. And that was key, because that meant that I could go and be a gopher, which means go for that, go for this, go for that, go for this. And you get paid 25 bucks a day, but you really get to do a lot. And you're working right with the producers, you're working with the broadcasters. So I should say that Harper's Bazaar had no compunction about hiring me as a secretary. So that was my, that was my day job. Uh, but every night I would go over to West 65th Street and I would go down in what I'd call the caves. It was the old horse stables where they had their production places where they did the post-production and the voiceovers with broadcasters. And I would just go sit in the back and it got, they were so accustomed to me being there that it was like I was just part of the staff and I would be, you know, I wouldn't get paid anything. But one night, you know, Howard Cosell showed up to do his voiceover. He was the best. He was incredible. But to do his voiceover in such an incredible way, he needed a few martinis. <laughs> so I would be sent out to the local bar to go get two martinis made exactly how Cosell wanted them and then somehow let tell the bartender and let him take me and take them out of the bar and back into the ABC. Anyway, so those are the kind of things I did for a long time. And I learned so much and got to know so many people. I was starting to sit in the 18th hole broad, you know, broadcasting place at the U.S. Open with Henry Longworth. Yeah, I mean, it was just great. So after several months of doing this gopher work, she, one of the ABC sports guys tells her, hey, I have a friend at Sports Illustrated. They're looking for someone on their research desk. Would you be interested? She says, sure. She goes and interviews. She doesn't get the job, but she keeps at it. She like, you know, hangs up the rejection letter in her room and is like determined she's going to make it. And she keeps doing the gopher stuff for ABC sports. And every time she goes somewhere and does something fun with them, she sends a postcard to the research person at Sports Illustrated. Hi, I just wanted to keep in touch, let you know what I'm doing, that kind of thing. And eventually another spot opens up. Here she is kind of talking about how she finally landed a job. By and by, about seven or eight months in, one of the producers comes to me and says, hey, I know someone over at Sports Illustrated who is the head of the research. Would you like me to? Okay, so this is how it happens, okay? This is how it happens. That's the lesson that I want to leave with you. Because I said, of course I would. So I went over, I did an interview, I gave them my resume, and I didn't get hired. I got a rejection letter. And I put it up on my wall, and every morning I'd wake up and I'd see that rejection letter, I'd go do my secretarial thing at Harper's Bazaar, I'd keep doing this thing with ABC, but here's the difference. Every place we'd go with ABC, I'd start sending a postcard from that location to the person who was the head of research at Sports Illustrated. <laughs>
and I write, okay, I'm out at the U.S. Open. I'm out here at Forest Hills doing this. I'm so-and-so. I'm, you know, just want to stay in touch, you know, etc. So about five months later, in September of 1974, I get a call from the head of research, and one of their researchers, uh, Susie Adams, had been hired by World Tennis Magazine to be the editor, and they needed a researcher. And so I was brought in again, and that time I got hired. I'm still mad that Good Girls Revolt was canceled. <laughs> Ames, I don't know if you watched that also. I totally did watch that show, and it's all I was thinking about the whole time I was listening to Melissa's story. I was like, oh my god, this is just like Good Girls Revolt. It was a great show. Infuriating. Devastating. But really glad that it was made even for a season. It was a really good show. Um, yeah, her story is actually remarkably similar to a lot of the stuff that happens in that show. At the time, the research desk was kind of like the only place that women could work in magazines. Um, but she, you know, was enjoying learning how to report and was getting to do more and more interesting things that she liked and actually ended up covering TV and radio for Sports Illustrated, which meant that she was like showing up at ABC Sports again, but this time like with a, a critical eye on what they were doing. And then she was trying to move into baseball because that was her favorite sport. And here she is talking about how she tried to, you know, make it clear that she should be the person that they had reporting the baseball games. So when Stephanie Salter, who's a great, great friend and became an extraordinary uh, woman sports columnist out in San Francisco, left the magazine because she realized she was never going to be made a writer and she wanted to write. So she went out to San Francisco worked at the Examiner and uh, covered sports out there. Um, when she left, that opened that slot. There were two baseball reporters. And having done the baseball books and shown this interest, um, I got um, made in that at, um, sort of midway through the 76 season. So um, we get through 76 season, 77 season, and I am at a game every day. I mean, every night. I mean, I go to my job. I'm there, my job, until like, you know, six each night. I take the subway up to the stadium or out to Shea or up to Yankee Stadium. And then I'm taking the subway home alone at about 12 or 12.30 every night. And that's my life. And um, I loved it. And I just wanted to learn the game and I wanted to learn how to report. So having given this opportunity to be a reporter, I decided that I was not satisfied with fact-checking stories. I wanted to learn how to write baseball and report it. That was a very new notion at Sports Illustrated for women to do that. Most of the women there were fact-checkers and that was all they were gonna be. So that was new. So she's going to the games all the time and she's loving it and they start to give her more and more responsibility because she starts to really get it and, and be valuable to the reporting team. And she tells this story about in 1976 when she kind of first started to really notice that like that there were just sort of issues with her being a woman and reporting on this stuff. And especially like the further she progressed, the more issues kind of came up. Here's that story. I am assigned to go on the road with Roger Kahn, who wrote The Boys of Summer. So Roger Kahn is assigned to do a three-part series on the old-timers of baseball. So out we had, and he had asked for um, a reporter uh, to go with him, and I was the one assigned for that, for that task. And so we were on the road for about two weeks. 
The first games that we go to are in Kaminsky Park because he wants to hang out with Bill Veck, who's sort of the old timer who now owns the White Sox again. So we arrive in the press box. I'd never been to Kaminsky Park, and as the only woman covering baseball full time at that point, whenever I would appear in a, in a new press box, um, you know, they didn't quite know what to make of this. Um, there was a time before this that women weren't even allowed in the press box. So the fact that I was there um, always was a matter of, of at least interest and conversation. So I noticed early on in the game that a number of sports writers are going up and whispering something into Roger's ear. Roger's in the first row was sitting with Bill Beck and I'm behind him. And I didn't know what was going on, but he later told me that a number of the sports writers came up and admonished him and said he couldn't bring his girlfriend into the press box. So um, that was kind of, this is 1976. Okay, this is why I'm kind of giving you this. So then the game ends and the White Sox win amazingly. And um, very exciting. And we're gonna meet Bill Vec in what's called the Bard's Room, which is where the writers go after the game, after they filed, and they're gonna go drink and just share stories like baseball writers do. So we head down to the Bard's Room and we walk in and I, we sit down at a table and Roger goes up to the bartender to get some drinks and he's gonna get himself an alcoholic beverage and my job is to take notes so he gets me a spritzer or something. And he starts, he was gonna walk back and get the drinks but instead he signals to me to get up and he walks us out. And he said, we're not, we can't, we're not staying. And I was like, well, what's going on? Well, I didn't really know this story until I read the story in his book, October Men, which he wrote early in the 2000s. And what happened is that the bartender told him that no women were allowed in that room. And that uh, it didn't matter if I was a reporter for Sports Illustrated, I wasn't allowed to be in that room. And, and he, um, so Roger walked out and he was furious. So as he tells it in October Men, he called Bill Veck the next morning and he said, this is, this is unacceptable, you have to do something about this. And Bill says to him, I don't control the room, the writers do, I don't control it. And Roger said, bullshit, you control this park and I want her in there tomorrow night. You and I are gonna talk and she's gonna be with us. And the next night I was. And so I spent uh, about three hours listening to two old men talk about baseball and <laughs> drinking my spritzers, and it was just heavenly. I loved it. You know, 1976 is an interesting year for us to be talking about, Amy. A lot of women who are our peers were born around then or a little after, and I think it's easy for us to either not realize or at least forget how different it was for women in the 70s, especially women who worked and uh, had career aspirations. And Yes. The 1970s in particular, it feels like, at least to me, that sort of last decade before a lot of really important changes were made and it were sort of pushed forward and codified. And I think a lot of those legal changes are seem to be a little more widely understood now. I, thanks to what I would call the cult of RBG, and I don't mean that in a bad way, um, but the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has become this sort of cultural icon for so many people, now that, but then that also means that they've started to learn about her judicial work, her legal work, before she ascended to be a Supreme Court justice. And I think, you know, this clip really explains some of that. It explains how, how important it was for some of those legal cases in the 1970s to you know, be cases in the first place, let alone, you know, for those plaintiffs to be successful. I think in the 70s, you know, there were still a lot of things about about our, you know, women's work lives, um, heterosexual marriage, 
you know, things that, that have that have now since really changed. And it's easy to just not sort of think about all the ways that, you know, basically right as some of us were sort of coming into the world, a lot of that was really shifting. And it was very different for women who are older than us. Mm-hmm, totally. So that whole thing leads up to the summer of 1977, when she kind of ends up having this big confrontation with the commissioner of baseball. Here she is telling that story. And two quick things that we should know before I get to my sort of moment of um, confrontation with the commissioner. And that is that over the course of 1977, I was really starting to prove that I could really handle this beat and do the work. And some, you know, people were getting used to me being around, at least in New York. And so Mickey Morbido, who was my age, who was the rookie PR person, he understood my frustrations. He didn't quite know how to handle it, but he understood them. And by mid-season, he came to me and he made an offer. He said, if you want to go in and spend some time with Billy after the games, Billy Martin, <coughs> the manager, he said, why don't you just wait around at the side door of the clubhouse? I'll go in the front door and I'll come let you in the side door and then you can just go into Billy's office because I didn't need to go through the locker room to do that. I said, deal, I'll take it. And so that's what we did for six or seven weeks, and it was great. I suddenly had a front row seat, because what I did is I found out that all the other reporters came in from the locker room, and they would tell Billy what's going on, what did the players say, and so I'd get the story. You know, I knew what was happening. I knew the dynamics just from sitting there, and Billy was great. He was great. He was very welcoming, and the guys got used to me being there. And no one wrote a story. No one complained about it. So we get to the last two games of the season, and I get to the stadium, and, Mar and Mickey has left me two clubhouse passes for the last two games. That means I have access to the clubhouse. Wow. So, this, so what I want you to understand is that I was really working very, very gently under the radar screen to try to gradually push this along. I understood the sensitivity of it, but I thought if I just keep proving my merit, this is a very woman thing, um, you know, that it will all kind of work out, and it had, you know, so, but I still understood that if I went in after the game, you know, when you get into the showering and all of that, that, you know, that might create a little raucous, so I thought, I'll just take one step at a time, and I used the clubhouse passes to go in before the game, between batting practice. No one's changing, they're all in their uniforms, you know, but that was a time when I had not been allowed in either, so when you hear anyone say that this is an issue about nudity it's not okay if it had been about nudity i would have been able to go in before the game there is no showering there is no nudity it was about keeping women out so anyway i went in before those two games the world did not end you know it was amazing um and no one wrote about it because i was taking you know the slow road I wasn't banging on the door, I was really working it through. So we get to the 1977 World Series and I figure, I've got the Yankees nailed here, you know? I have clubhouse access, I've got access to Billy's office, I'm very comfortable. So I get my pass, it says that I have clubhouse access for both teams, because they hadn't noticed that they were giving the pass to a woman. Hmm. You know, that was the only probably woman covering the series. So I think as a courtesy, this is again a problem we have, as a courtesy, I think that I should go over and at least let the Dodgers know, since they have no woman covering them, that I might be in fact coming into the clubhouse and sort of asking, you know, if this can happen. 
And so I start out with the notion that, you know, I know Tommy Lasorda, the manager. Why don't I ask him and see if I can just get access to him, to his office? And that'd be fine, because I'd have the Yankees clubhouse and him and my colleague could take care of the clock room. So again, gradual. And I approach Tommy, and he wants nothing to do with this question. He, he just, it's like a hot potato, and he just tosses it back to his player rep, Tommy John, who happens to be walking right behind us, going down to the field. And Tommy turns out to be an amazing human being. I mean, aside from having an elbow that everyone knows about with the Tommy John surgery, he is a great human being, and... Um, he sat down in the dugout with me, heard me out, took a look at my press pass, and he said, you know, he says, you have the right to be there. He said, but you know, we're not used to this. We don't have any women covering it, so let me go back and talk to the guys. Let me see what they think, and let me talk to you tomorrow before the game. I said, fine. You know, I didn't need their permission, but I thought it was better if we were all on the same page. Sure. Yeah, right? So he comes back out on Tuesday. We meet before the game. And he says, you know, he says, I took a vote. We, you know, we talked about it. We took a vote. And, you know, it was a majority. He said, yeah, they get it. You know, you have the right to be there. You know, there's a, there's, he said, there is a minority of people who don't want this to happen. And I'm just warning you that there are going to be some people who aren't happy about this. But as far as we're concerned, you know, you have every right to be there. I said, well, thank you. And I start walking away. He calls me back. He says, hey, one thing. He said, would you go and find Steve Brenner, our PR person, and just give him a heads up that we've had this conversation and this is going to happen? And I said, fine. You know, I'm happy to do it. I mean, I probably could have said no. I mean, it's not my job to go let the PR person know, but what the heck? Did you know this guy? Steve Brenner? No, I'd never met him before. But I found him, you know, and I said, Steve, hey, I'm Melissa, you know, I work for Sports Illustrated, and here's what just happened. He looked like a ghost. I mean, he looked like he might just, you know, fall over. But he just walked away. He didn't even say goodbye. I remember that. And he walked away. And so I went to my press seat. And because of the World Series, they have the big guys, you know, the important people that are up in the press box. And then they have an auxiliary press box for, I mean, there's hundreds of people there covering it. So I was in the auxiliary press box, which, by the way, was a great seat because I was sitting next to Roger Angel. I mean, you don't get better than that, okay? So Roger and I were in the auxiliary press box, and um, among, among many others. So in the fifth inning, there's an announcement that comes down through the little um, intercom thing that they'd set up to relay messages from the press box, and I didn't hear it right the first time because I thought I heard my name. You know, I thought, this is odd. They never call someone up. So, it, but they repeated it. It was, Melissa Lutke, please report to the main press box. So up and um, I was met at the door by of all people Mickey Morabito I felt still to this day so badly for Mickey because it was Mickey's job he had been sent by the commissioner's office to take me into the back area of the press box away from where any of the rest of the press would hear this and tell me that the commissioner had not given me permission to go in the locker room and he was banning me from both locker rooms, both clubhouses, both managers' offices for this series and forever for the rest of his tenure as commissioner. So Sports Illustrated tries to negotiate with the commissioner for a while and at first they come up with like what everyone thinks will be a solution and here's Melissa explaining how it was so clearly not. Well, I didn't call Peter Carey that weekend but Jane Gross did 
Um, Jane Gross had been um, working at Sports Illustrated when I first arrived there. She'd gone to cover the NBA and was very close with my editor, Peter Carey, who had also covered basketball. So um, Jane called him and said, Peter, I think there's something really odd going on up at the stadium. I think Melissa's you know, dealing with something up there. But she wasn't clear because I really did not talk with any of my colleagues about it because I figured I handled this, you know? And um, so Jane had called him. So I, when I got to my office on Thursday, my phone was ringing and it was Peter. And Peter in a very gruff voice said, get down to my office right now. And um, so I did. And he asked me to explain what happened and I did. And much to my surprise, much to my surprise, he was very concerned about it and wanted to act in some way on it. I was, that more surprised me than what Kuhn said, frankly. Um, so um, he asked me to go back to my office and to type out a memo telling him exactly what had happened and write it in the form of a letter to the commissioner about what had happened so that it would be a record of what had happened to me up at the stadium, exactly what was said. So anyway, I did that. And uh, Peter then went to the managing editor, Roy Terrell, who was an old Air Force guy from Texas. And again, I was very shocked because Peter's told me this story. He walked in, he told Roy what was happening, and Roy said, do whatever you need to do. And never asked him about it again. You know, wow. whatever needed to be done. So what they did is, I'll, I'll just try to shorten this. They went into negotiations uh, during the World Series because this was game one that this happened in. So by game six, and I was not included in any of these discussions, but on game six, which was uh, turned out to be the last game, they'd come back from LA. I was not sent to LA because I was the fact checker, so I had to be in New York. They come back to game six, I'm going back up to the stadium. They call me that afternoon and they say, you're going to have a male escort. Well, I'd never had a male escort before. <laughs> I mean, I thought, well, okay. <laughs> so. Uh, it turned out that Larry Shank, poor Larry Shank, um, who was a PR person for the Philadelphia Phillies, who I knew had been assigned to me. His job was to meet me after the game. Whatever happened, no one knew that at that point Reggie would hit three home runs and the Yankees would win the first World Series, bring it back to New York, and all pandemonium would break out. But Larry and I were supposed to meet down by the winning locker room after the game, and he was going to have the unenviable job of going into the locker room. This was Bowie's idea, that this was separate was equal in this lawyer who had gone to the University of Virginia, obviously studied Brown versus Board of Education, and still believed that separate is equal, uh, was going to go into the locker room and bring players out to me. I was standing in a concrete corridor with people yelling, Yankees, we love Yankees. I mean, resounding off of the walls. And I was supposed to conduct my interviews standing next to the locker room door with the players he would bring out. Well, that was an absolute failure. I, of course, asked to speak to Reggie. And uh, it was an hour and 45 minutes later after I had the side door of the clubhouse slammed in my face, told that the commissioner had said, you're not allowed in, um, that Reggie came out, turned to me and said, I said all I have to say. I'm tired. I'm going downtown. So it becomes clear that, you know, the solution that they're suggesting is just not going to work and that they're not really going to budge. So they file a lawsuit and it couldn't really be, it couldn't really be stacked any better for Melissa. Um, here she is explaining why. So the negotiations went on for about two months. It was very clear that Bowie Kuhn was never going to budge. It was never going to change. 
he always said that there were separate accommodations for women. There were never separate accommodations. There was never a place. And had there been, we still would have fought it because separate is not equal. So um, on December 29, 1977, they made the decision to, um, to sue baseball, to fight baseball, and they uh, filed a lawsuit in federal court that day. They had already talked to their counsel, outside counsel, which was Cravath, Swain & Moore, another white shoe law firm, and they had assigned me the most incredible attorney in the world who's become one of my dearest friends I'm working with now on this book, F.A.O. Schwartz, Jr. Yes, the toy store. The toy store, yes. But, son. but, but, Fritz, uh, my attorney, the man who becomes my attorney, what did he, when he took the call to take my case, he was standing in Fritz Mondale's office in the White House. He, the two Fritzes, had become great friends because my Fritz had been the senior counsel for the church committee for the last two years. He was the one who uncovered Counterpol. He was the who discovered all of Hoover's, you know, kind of movement into the black movement, into the women's movement. This is an extraordinary man, an extraordinary human being. And he decided, standing in Fritz Mondale's office in the White House, that this was exactly the first case he wanted to take coming back. So he became my attorney, and um, by a spin of the wheel, this is how they do it in federal court, they have a big wheel, and they put in the names of judges who haven't gotten cases in a while, et cetera. They spin it, and the, and the court clerk pulls out a card. Lo and behold, the card he pulls out is the only woman on that court. Her name is Constance Baker Mock. Okay. So how does this now circle around immediately? Constance Baker Motley not only was the first woman on that court, she was the first African-American woman ever appointed to sit on the federal bench by Lyndon Baines Johnson. She had worked side by side with Thurgood Marshall through the Civil Rights Movement. She had represented James Meredith, Charlene Hunter Gall. She had gone to the Supreme Court with 10 cases out of the Southern Courts to appeal them to the Supreme Court in racial discrimination cases. She won nine of them. And just so we're clear that she understood separate is not equal. She wrote the brief for Board versus Brown versus Board of Education. Did I know any of this when I was 26 years old? No. <laughs> Fritz, Fritz gave me a quick run of the history and it soon left my head and there was no such thing as Google. And you know, when I walked into the hearing and looked up and saw this woman sitting there, I, I really didn't know this history, but I have really educated myself in her. She is a phenomenal woman and the idea that FAO Schwartz represented me before Constance Baker Motley in a district court hearing is like unbelievable. We have one two hour hearing before her, scheduled hearing. We end up back because baseball comes back a few times after she makes her ruling, which she makes in our favor. In uh, September 25th of 1978, that's the 40th anniversary that was just um, celebrated and commemorated. So. Um, her ruling essentially um, has to do with uh, Yankee Stadium, per se, because that was where the incident took place. 
but it actually becomes a ruling that the American League totally goes by. So every clubhouse in the American League is then open. The National League doesn't think it so much applies to them, so they sort of go team by team. And still by 1984, I think some of you may have heard of Claire Smith, who's a phenomenal writer, and she um, ends up uh, at the San Diego Padres clubhouse in 1984 trying to cover it for the New York Yankees, and she is literally bodily thrown out of that clubhouse. And um, anyway, Peter Uberoth comes in as the head of the National League um, soon after he leaves the Olympics then, and he then says, all clubhouses will be open. We're not going to stand for this. And everyone is celebrating. And the night that she gets the ruling, there's a game. And so you'd think, you know, that she would go to the game. But she doesn't. And here she is explaining why. I thought it was so interesting. There was a t game going on at Yankee Stadium that night. Toronto was in town. And I had the thought I might go up to it because I went up to most games. But when I heard that the ruling had come down, I made the decision not to go. And I'll tell you why. Um, I realized that that night, the story was going to be about the women in the clubhouse. It wasn't going to be about baseball. And the reason I had filed the suit was to cover baseball. And I knew that every local TV station, in fact, this is what happened, would send a woman who had never been to a baseball game or park. And the story would be about, here I am in the Yankees clubhouse. And I wanted no part of that. It's interesting to me that Melissa had the foresight to avoid being part of sort of those one-off news stories because she was so interested in being part of the narrative about changing history. I, get, I think that really speaks to her knowledge of what she was working toward and sort of how this would impact other women long term. I think, that, I think it's really cool. Yeah, she's really inspiring. Okay, so on top of, you know, feeling sort of like, well, this isn't really what I was fighting for. This whole ordeal kind of just made her really question a lot of things about her identity and, and just all kinds of things, just about the way that she was living in the world and the way that women live in the world and, and everything like that. And it led her to some big life decisions that maybe weren't so great, um, which I thought was so interesting and also like really great that she kind of opened up about that because I, I think probably a lot of people make decisions um, driven by these things but don't either don't connect the dots or wouldn't be particularly prone to share them with strangers <laughs> so anyway here she is with that story I will throw in a little complicating thing it's I'd be happy to talk to people later about it but it is something I'm going to talk about in my book and that is that going through this experience was um, exceedingly difficult for me. You get to this tomboy question, sort of circles back, because the coverage of me portrayed me in ways that I didn't recognize myself. You know, I walked you through how I really took the gradualist approach. I was sort of more the mother may I than I was any other way. You know, the courtesy of going to the Dodgers, which ended up in this happening. Um, and yet the coverage of me fell into the range of this pushy broad going into places she shouldn't be, or the wanton woman who wants to go leer at the male athletes, et cetera, et cetera. And I became very discomforted by it, and I didn't have the guts that you all have today on Twitter, which I admire so much, to speak back to it. I didn't feel I had a place to speak back to it. I just didn't know what to say. And so I internalized it. And I made a really, really bad mistake because of it. Um, I met a man during this time and 
Within three weeks, he had proposed to me, and I said yes. And I said yes because I was really looking for a place to hide and become what I sort of thought I was, which is more the feminine woman part of me, rather than this characterization of me that I didn't recognize. And I thought, you know, if I could just be a wife, that would pretty much solve it because wives have a particular narrative. You know, they're characterized in a particular way. So um, by May of that year, I was married. I mean, it was all very quick and very wrong and a bad judgment, and many friends told me not to. Uh, in fact, the night before I got married, my bridesmaids uh, took me up to a bedroom and all circled me and said, don't do this. And I did it. And, um, you know, what's so interesting is that I was right about one thing. And that is that night when I stayed home to watch the game instead of going up to the stadium, the next day, one of the, one of the city's leading sports columnists, Mike Lupica, wrote a piece in the Daily News in which he referred to me as Mrs. Lincoln and wrote about how I decided to stay home instead and make dinner for my husband. I really feel for her when she says that the news media portrayal of what she was doing doesn't feel familiar. I think, you know, especially because she's a reporter and because we're reporters, this is something that we're all very thoughtful about. And we're also really wary of doing that to other people, you know, like that's not that's not the point of reporting. In fact, that's <laughs> reporting is factual. It's based on, um, you know, sort of obviously what we observe and sort of our own biases that we may bring to a, a situation. But, you know, most of us are trying to get at the truth. I Everyone I know who is a writer or a reporter or a journalist is just trying to get at the truth and explain, explain the world to other people, you know, explain things in a way that so that we can all understand you know, someone else's story. So I think, I think Melissa's right that it is easier today if, you know, uh, you know, if you're misrepresented, there's, it's, it's a lot easier to push back. And I, I think Amy, you and I have both had that experience, like, it also makes us really sensitive to this issue, you know, where we've been interviewed about our work, and maybe feel like it was misrepresented, or we were asked weird questions, or, you know, it, it like the portrayal of what we do or ourselves hasn't felt familiar. And I think, I think we can really relate to that. Yeah, I had the same reaction. So, yeah, obviously that marriage doesn't last. Um, she gets divorced pretty quickly. And then, you know, she goes on to kind of like push boundaries in various other ways, too. Like she really wanted children all her like most of her adult life wanted children and kept trying different things and having having them not work. And then she hit about 40 and um, her friend was like, so I guess you're not going to have kids then, huh? And she was like, wait a minute, I haven't made that decision. And so she ended up deciding to adopt a baby in China. So she goes and she does that. And she wrote a book about being a single mother in the US that was like, actually like pretty groundbreaking for the time in the early 80s. So like, it's just she was she's super interesting, like definitely total bear cat, total boundary pusher. And just like a really, really interesting woman. So yeah, hope uh, hope everybody enjoyed that story. And we'll stick some links in the show notes to more information about her and the various uh, books and films and things where you can find out more about her past and her whole story. Amy, thank you for bringing this audio to us. And I'm so glad that we could tell Melissa's story. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening.
Bearcat is produced by me, Amy Westervelt. And me, Brittany Shute. Our original music is produced by David Whited, and illustrations for each episode are drawn by Jennifer Kirkham. You can find us online at bearcatpodcast.com. Bearcat is available in the Apple Podcast Store, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.